This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Good afternoon, Mr. Halton. You get the weirdest accents every time we talk. It's like you, you don't really know who you are. I don't know who you are. No, the game that we guess, right? It's identity crisis time, but uh, yeah. Maybe we, we can say that it goes back to your days as a pilot, right? You never knew where you were, so you had to just kind of blend in, right? <laughs> it's my creative license. <laughs> it's my expression. Some people would work. I make weird sounds on the podcast. Okay. Thanks for clarifying. Just <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Don't, don't get weird on me. Um, episode 93, and uh, we welcome to the show Chris Barker, Project Chair for the Wild Sheep Society, BC a man that I consider a friend, a mentor. He brought me into, actually he didn't bring me into the society, but he's certainly been a big mentor and big supporter um, from the get go. And just, uh, just a force for wild sheep. And he's been doing it for decades. It's uh, if not like, you know, sometimes in the wild sheep world, you know, stuff happens and you just kind of, you know, um, your energy levels are, are not as high as they always are. But Chris is always going at it a hundred percent and always fired up. And, so if ever I'm having kind of a kind of a, a slow day or a, a um, low energy day, just call Chris up and he gets me fired up. Uh, yeah. We we call those a God damn it Steve day. Those ones, yeah, GDS day. Right. <laughs> See, you even got an yeah. acronym. I knew it. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I thought this episode was great. Um, our, our members always ask where their their money goes, and Chris digs right into it. Being the project's chair, uh, throws some numbers that i've heard before but when you actually break them down and it's like holy crap those dollars go a long long way and they have a meaningful impact and every time i I speak with chris we always have a great conversation and when we get a chance to do things like this you just learn so much and as you said he's been doing this for decades not to date him as he says but uh he's he's been doing this a hell of a long time he's one of the founders of the the society itself right that he, he knows his shit he knows his sheep yeah i think he served as president for 10 years something like that ridiculous summer. yes um and, and the one thing i've always respected about chris is his respect for the members i and i i subscribe to that too don't get me wrong but you know chris has always gone the extra length to you know making sure our members dollars are well spent um, that we're, you know, making really sound financial decisions because we know how much our members trust us with their money. We've gained that license from them to to put that money on the ground. And I know Chris takes that very seriously, as our entire board does. Don't get me wrong. But um, that's one thing that you'll, and you'll hear Chris talk about it on this podcast. And he talks about it lots on our board calls um, is just being accountable for our members' money, you know. And, I, and I'm the same way, you know, um, and this I learned this from Chris is that I got to be able to stand up at our AGM and defend every single decision we make. And if we can't do that with the utmost confidence, then we're not, we shouldn't be spending that money. Right. And, uh, and that, that's come from Chris, that leadership. And it's, uh, he talks about lots on our board calls and uh, I think it's a good thing to live by. Right. Cause you, you don't want to be standing in front of the AGM hiding behind a decision going, uh, yeah, we shouldn't spend the money there. That that's not a good idea. So, oh, yeah. um, and Chris talks about the importance of, you know, making sure our members come first because they're the ones paying the bills on this. They're, they're, they're the ones that are investing and we're there at their behest. Our board of directors are elected by our members and we're there serving them. 
there are um, constituents and and the ones that we have to have to be accountable to, right? And, and that's what it's all about, right? We're a membership based organization. Ultimately, you guys call the shots, and as Kyle said, it's easy to get up there when we 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 know we've made the right decisions based on your input. So it's. Yeah, it's, it was a great conversation as we always have with Chris and yeah, learned a ton as always. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, like you said, you know, his knowledge of projects and what we're doing on the landscape, uh, his vision, like, you know, I remember when I first got involved, uh, you know, our project list was substantially smaller, but Chris has always had this vision, right? Um, and he's always had these ideas and concepts of where he wants to take it. Um, and um and that vision and leadership has been a big part of why we're at where we're at today. So yeah, it's fun just to sit down and talk to him and, and talk about these big projects that we've been involved in, the, where the money's going, um, the different regions we're spending money in and, and uh, the great work that's being done for wild sheep. Pretty cool. Yeah. Some pretty staggering dollar amounts. Yeah. So on that note um, for our members, um, you know, we talked about on the last podcast, we've got the five raffles currently going um you know we encourage you to to continue to support because as chris points out in this the money from those raffles our gaming money our gaming funds have to go to um uh, specific prescribed things so you can't take them we can't use them to go to reno for sheep week we can't use them for things that that are not that, that are approved by gaming so our projects specifically come from our gaming account so when we write a check um, for a northern burn like we did this year for 100 grand that comes from our gaming account our members dollars through raffle purchases are funding that so we've got those five raffles on right now um, the one campfire raffle that's a new one very very cool package and then we've got four other great new raffles on our website so um, if you're wondering how you can support our conservation work that's a great opportunity to do so yeah easy 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 we, it's you, you click a link you Type, type in your vitals, keep your credit card info, and it's done. 25 bucks may not seem like a lot, but when you add it up at the end of the year with everybody else that's chipping in 25, 30, 40 bucks, it, it, as you can see, it does, it does uh, a ton of stuff on the landscape as we get into in this chat with Chris. Yeah, uh, Mike Schroeder used to say this with our wild sheep raffles conservation um, uh, plus opportunity, right? So, yeah, we're supporting conservation and an opportunity to win some kick butt prizes and the, the prize packages are cool like there's a ton of great prizes there with 60 70 thousand dollars in prizes between the five packages mm-hmm. um something like uh, it's maybe not quite that high but um really really good opportunity and um and you're supporting a great cause so pick up some tickets support conservation and uh with that we're going to send you to over to episode 93 with projects chair wild sheep society bc chris barker the perception of hunting you know, ha- has changed. It's our duty now, our responsibility as hunters, to change it back. And we've spent the last few decades trying, you know, espousing that, that message, preaching that message about wildlife conservation. You know, we've, it's fallen on deaf ears, all of our attempts. I think what, what we have to do is, is maybe uh, appeal to the emotional side or the visceral side we have to tell our story. We know what we are. We know how deeply we care about wildlife. It's just the people out there that are, that are you know, voting to get rid of hunting, they don't understand our stories. Sometimes we, we have to 
translate it to something that they understand. So we've had 92 sessions to talk as sheep, and I don't think we've had Barker on yet. Yeah, and he's sitting next to you. Like for those that uh, are listening, they they can't see what I can. I've got double the ugly in front of me. Ugly. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, um, yeah, this was hard to put it together. Uh, of course, this is our day job for Steve and I. But Chris is a volunteer, hardest working guy in the society. Okay, maybe not the hardest, but one of the work, hardest working guys. He's been at it for the almost the longest, maybe not the longest. Bill's there too, but 25 years plus service. And so, you know, uh, I'm probably going to get myself in some hot water with the board on this one. But uh, but anyway, um, we got you here, Chris. And I know that you were balancing your day job and, and you took time out of work today. So thanks for being here, man. No problem. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure. <clears throat> so 25 years of sheep work, that's a, that's a long time, but... Um, uh, let's start off with, and I know a lot of our listeners know who you are, but what drives this passion? And, and like, how did you not get sick of it 22 years ago? <laughs> I think it comes back to that giving back piece. Um, you know, everybody wants to give back and, you know, how do we continue to give back? And I think as you get older, it, um, it becomes stronger. Um, you know, we all love to hunt, but the hunt is part of the part of what we do. And it's not necessarily driven by the success of the hunt or, or a kill, but it's just about getting out there. So if you're not successful, the trip to me is still a success. And I think volunteerism is the same way and somewhat a little more rewarding because you can see the gratification from other people that may not have the knowledge or the time to, to give back or put in that thank you for doing what you're doing. And um, I think it grows within you and it's, it's like um, it's like sheep hunting. Once you start, you can't stop. And I've used, I've used that old analogy: once you're in, you're not getting out. It's like the mob. So oh, I feel that. There it is again. I feel that one. Without volunteers, though, uh, to be blunt, hunting wouldn't happen, right? And that's that, that's a lot of it, right? That's what drives a lot of people, to, as you said, Chris, to get involved. And then once they're in, they're stuck, right? They realize there's a satisfaction that comes along with giving back. So it's huge. The one thing I've noticed, though, Chris, with uh, volunteer organizations, um, there's a real high burnout rate, right? Like people come in, they're super passionate, they work really hard, and then they, you know, they do two, three, four, five years, and then off they go. And uh, I'm new to the game. Steve's relatively new to the game. But, you know, you've been doing this for literally decades. Like, and I guess that's one thing I've always kind of recognized and admired in you know, guys like yourself and Mike Selden, Bill and David, like they, you guys have done this for so long. It's phenomenal that you can continue, continue to keep this up. Yeah, it's been, like I say, it's been a journey. And, I, you know, I can remember when, when I started with the Sheep Society, Mike was on the board just before me and then I got on the board. But, um, you know, sometimes I joke about it a little bit. But, I mean, when we first started, I think I had two or $3,000 for projects in a year after we'd done our convention and due to some of those members that have come along, had the vision and implemented stuff. Um, it's generated the, the funds that we can put, you know, a million dollars back over the last three or four years on the ground. So that keeps you going. We've seen the success. We've seen membership. We see other people buying in. I th and I think it just keeps that passion alive. The other piece of it too is the disease thing. 
And I realized a long time ago that if, if we were going to have successful wild sheep populations within the province, disease had to be sorted out. And I said once disease was sorted out, policy, legislation, regulation, whatever that looks like, then I could retire. But you realize I've been going to the minister and telling her that you can't sort this out because we can't afford to lose Chris, right? So, <laughs> okay, maybe that's not true. You are a true politician. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so on that, in that vein, Chris, um, you know, you mentioned projects. And for those that are listening and maybe aren't as familiar as some, um, talk about your role in the society, I guess, where you fit in and on the executive committee and then the work that you focus on primarily, because we all kind of have our own little areas that we spend our time in. So talk about the work that you're doing or, or what what's important to you on the board. So I think, you know, if I go back in time a bit, um, when I first started on the board, I started off as secretary, secretary um, kind of treasurer, not, not my strongest points or roles to be involved, but uh, that's kind of where I ended up. Um, I was president for seven, seven or so years and, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't men mention Glenn Kunzel was a great mentor for both me and David and Mike um, who passed away. But there's been a lot of mentorship for us that are still here. And, you know, we've all been presidents at some point in time. And then it's just kind of evolved. And then I, you know, was on the board like you are, Kyle, with WSF, um, doubling down. So you're doing twice as much. And I, I backed away from the board a bit when I was doing WSF obligations and then, uh, Kind of got out of that and got back into WSSBC priorities and um, got back on the board as a director and then uh, back as I was always I've always been the projects chair for I think for the last ten years I think I don't know I'd have to count that one up but um, and you know now on the executive as VP so steering the ship as they say but um, we've got a great board and I think you know you'll see some of our board members climbing the ladder and moving into these executive positions and those old farts will probably wane back a little bit more, but um, projects is the passion. That's where we put the, you know, I, I wear that one on my heart. That one's where we take our, our memberships, our members money, our raffle money and put it back on the ground. And I think that's, it's a huge responsibility because I think our members are looking to see what WSSBC is doing, how we're doing it and um, how we're spending their money and it's it's their money we're putting on the ground so it's a it's a huge responsibility in my opinion or that's kind of the way i approach it yeah. to get that on the ground yeah so so who's who's your favorite board member <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> this sounds like i'm gonna get uh... <laughs> no I, no this was great I, I just wish we could use the video of this one just to watch both their eyeballs pop out of their head that was so worth the question continue chris thanks <laughs> There's a bunch of them there, Steve. <laughs> Actually, most of the board. I'd just say all the board is my favorite. Well done. And you say Kyle's a politician. <laughs> yeah. You didn't ask me who my favorite CEO was, so. <laughs> uh, okay. Now he's stumped. Now his <laughs> eyes are popping out. Well, no, because I, I realized I was muted before. I said, great is pretty awesome, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, so... So Chris, let's talk a little bit. So you talked, you know, in the early days, having a couple thousand dollars um, left over for projects, and um, and now that's a bit of a game changer. And um, we, you know, we, before we jumped on the podcast here, you and I were looking at some numbers, and uh, you know, that, I guess that's one thing that 
you know, has changed over the past few years is we just keep elevating our conservation footprint. So, you know, um, I guess to start with is how the heck do you do it? Because there's a ton of projects. We get a ton of requests and there's a lot of money at stake here. Like literally we, we're, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and um, so, you know, maybe just touch on, on um, I guess, you know, first of all, how you approach this stuff and, and, and how you can manage it all because it's become a bit of a beast with all of the projects. <laughs> that was the scary part. I mean, three years ago, it was all in my head. And um, that was even worse because if something ever did happen, it's <laughs> it's gone. So um, when Sabrina was here, she started a spreadsheet that started to track our projects and money we'd spent in carryovers and, <clears throat> and so forth. And we started to, you know, track where we were with our projects and have a list. So and um, it was funny because when we when we were talking yesterday, I was looking at it, going, "Have you got a sheet somewhere that you can pull up?" Because I can't remember everything. And he goes, "Yeah, we got the spreadsheet." So, um, you know, survey's done a great job bringing this spreadsheet up and kind of tracking our funds where it's going. It just brings that next level of piece of tracking each project, and you know, each project's broken out by region. You know, region three, four, five, six. Um, seven and eight <clears throat> but you know originally it started off where if I had an idea we'd we talked to the regional bios and you know it, it became it became an NGO government partnership in a sense that we were driving projects together and providing the success for the regional bios that they you know they're passionate but they're limited by what they could do with funds so those early discussions were with the regional bios and driving stuff and that's how kind of we kind of keep control of where our members' money is going on the ground is by having those discussions. We help, for lack of a better word, own those projects. So it's a, it's a great way of doing it to keep it assembled and tracking it. And like you said, Kyle, there's so many now. And like you said, when you're, when you're putting a million dollars on the ground and I see our next steps are going to be in, you know, all joking aside, you know, we're a million-dollar organization this year. I see as being a $2 million organization in uh, in three or four years. Um, we're actually putting maybe not $2 million on the ground, but that's what we're going to be, you know, divesting. And I mean, this year with our partnership money, it's it's huge, right? I mean, we've got more money in partner funding than we do with our own funding this year. So it's, you know, hats off to you and Serbs uh, for driving that stuff. Well, I think that's one thing that we do well as an organization is our collaborative approach, right? Like we, you know, we work closely with, uh, sponsors and donors. We look at our six conservation partners, how they're driving projects. Um, and then we look at, you know, working with other NGOs, whether it be the Wild Sheep Foundation, probably our strongest uh, ally there and, and the work, the great work the foundation's doing across the landscape. But then we we work with other partners like uh, Eastern Chapter, Midwest Chapter, um, uh, Iowa Fanaz. And, um, you know, we've had a lot of, you know, different organizations. And then even locally in British Columbia, Abbotsford Fish and Game, right? So, um, a ton of uh, collaboration there um, and even government funding too. You know, one example is we received a capital gaming grant for $75,000 for that Gatega River project. Well, we had to find partner funding in the amount of $75,000. It was a $150,000 project. Um, we didn't have a ton of skin in the game financially, but we were able to bring everyone together. And without us bringing those organizations together, that we wouldn't have had that funding, right? So I think it's pretty cool. 
It's it's really cool, Kyle. And I think that's the other thing, you know, as our success and we were putting money on the ground from our WSR, from our raffles, and, you know, that's what drives a lot of these projects of our, as our raffle money. People or, you know, other organizations see how we get our money on the ground and what we can do for sheep and other wildlife. And I think that just brings it in. So success breeds more success. And, you know, it makes it easier when you go talk to our conservation partners and try and, you know, hit them up for a decent donation. It's easier for those guys to say, yeah, we want to be part of this. We can see the success. We can see where our money is going to be. We can see the value of the social license piece of it. Um, it just it, it just inter interwines or inter, you know nets everything together, and I think the chapter and affiliates. I mean, obviously we've had a great relation with the chapters and affiliates um, over some whiskeys, but you know those those drinks over the table are the ones that usually bring you the success, and that's where you drive even more. And you know it's one tent, one campfire. Gray's analogy still still holds true, and you know it applies here in BC for sure. Well, yeah, that there's so many things I'd like to touch on there, but uh, uh, you know, I think the one thing that goes back to your early statement about um, you know bringing these these groups together, you look at Abbotsford. That was one of the things when we sat down. I think it was myself and you sat down with Ian Baird, the treasurer of Abbotsford, and you know they were really excited about it because we talked about matching funds, right? So, yeah. well, Cheap BC would match funds, but we would find others to match funds, and I think we did a three to one match on their dollars. So. They put in twenty grand, and that get it got us eighty thousand dollars. And um, I think that's an interesting piece for people when they see that they can turn their one dollar into four dollars. It's pretty empower- powerful, and I think that's one of the strengths. And and so yeah, uh, I you know kudos to our board for being able to do that and bring these these different entities together for and all for the benefit of wild sheep in BC, right? So yeah, no, I mean, and you know, you talk about those matches and how we create those and. We've done that on numerous projects and it just drives, it elevates our skin in the game and we can turn that $20,000 into $60,000. That's huge. We can accomplish so much. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I tell a story, I sit on the special sheep permit committee and um, I remember we were in uh, Vancouver in Richmond and we're trying to spend, I think it was, I want to say it was $130,000 or $170,000 for uh, sheep projects within the province that year and it just happened to be at the same time that all those trees blew down in stanley park and jimmy patterson stepped up and donated a million dollars to uh stanley park rejuvenation and i said if we had a million dollars for sheep projects in the province we could probably solve all the issues that we had at the time um so yeah you know even hctf has grown as well so i mean like you said there's another collaboration there we've had really good meetings with uh, with dan buffett and um and the board so yeah just continue to do, do the outreach and it and it drives what we're doing right i mean it's all for wild sheep and um it's 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 definitely grown and it's definitely uh it's definitely a business yeah it is and uh hats off to you for your vision uh, like these projects um they're they're they come from you know a place of leadership and there's tons of support from our board and our projects committee but it all starts somewhere, and and I know you've always got this vision. And you know, it's funny in the past we've we've joked about it because you've you said it's all up here, Kyle, and I'm like, yeah, I know. But what if you die? We're we're in trouble. So uh, you know, the cool thing is you've articulated that vision, and and we, you know now we do have it down on paper, and we do have a a roadmap forward. And um, so yeah, you're but you're 
your leadership and your stewardship has been a big part of why we're where we are today on the projects thing and which creates the confidence by our members to support us and our donors. It just builds on each other and eventually it just continues to grow. Right. And that's all, it all comes from that vision without that vision. There's none of that. Right. So, yeah, no. And it's, um, you know, you, we start, if we're going to dive into projects a little bit, you know, region three started off as a bit of a vision of how we could reestablish our Fraser river sheep populations. And, you know, it, prior to, Jumping on Region Three, I was I was living in Kelowna and looking at the habitat um, for sheep in the you know in the Okanagan Valley, and it was you know obviously winter range is is dwindling and and so forth. So we we instituted some stuff there, and we did some burn plans and recce assessments, and we were wondering if they were going to come to fruition. And you know Mother Nature's taking care of a bunch of it. Wildfire took all of our plans and started implementing those, and then. That kind of jumped into Region 3, and I'd been talking with Chris Proctor for for about uh, six, eight months about, you know, we need to do some health assessments on our Fraser River sheep just to find out if we do have movie in those populations because we were seeing this poor lamb recruitment. And uh, um, we finally, you know, Chris got, got it together and started driving and said we needed to do this. So we did our first assessment, and that's when we found out we had movie on the Fraser and that really started to set that ball in motion and how we were going to move forward with, with the Fraser and, uh, you know, that assessment really kind of put the vision in place for how long and how big that project was going to be on the treatment side of things. But then it also leads into the habitat side of things. So even though, you know, if we do this treatment and we can get policy and legislation in place to protect the sheep, then you're going into habitat and then habitat is perpetual. So, you know, a treatment component is going to be for lack of a better, a one-off. We're going to know where those sheep are living and what habitat they use and at what times. And then we can be target specific with our, uh, with our habitat work. But that's, that's the challenge is moving into that habitat work and the process that we have to go into that habitat work. So Chris, let's talk a little bit about the Fraser river like that. You know, what, our members have heard about this um, for a long time about the Fraser River Health Herd Assessment and Treatment. Um, we've done a film around it, the transmission film, um, which uh, a lot of our members haven't had the opportunity to see, but will shortly in the next, uh, well, certainly within the next six months. But um, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, that that Fraser River project and, and you know, a huge capital investment for us, a huge capital investment for all, all the people involved. I think, $1.6 million or something like that over the life of the project. It's basically 10 years, but, you know, it was close to half a million invested so far. So talk about, you know, what's happening on the Fraser, why it's so important and, and touching a little bit on, on what's happening with that project. And maybe where do we, what's happening this year on the Fraser? Um, when's that taking place and what does that look like? Yeah. So if, let's, I guess if we back it up, so obviously we did the initial assessment to find if Moby was present with our sheep herds, on the Fraser, once we knew that, then we had to kind of go into this process of what are we going to do? So some people may and may not know, but when we say a treatment, it's not a treatment, it's death. Um, we have to euthanize those sheep if they're Moby positive. So the first year we did our assessment, the second year we went into the treatment component and that went in where we had all these volunteers on the ground. We had a helicopter going out and capturing sheep and bringing them back to a central location where we could actually swab them, 
do a field analysis on them. If they came back movie positive, those sheep were euthanized and I moved on. So Chris picked out the polygons he wanted to work on. And basically we started in the south on the west side of the Fraser. So just above Lillooet, we were basically one population above. And I can't remember the exact locations <clears throat> of what herds they were. But we did the herd, did the treatment, and I think we euthanized, I want to say, I know there was 11 sheep in one population. And then the test came the following spring to see what our recruitment levels were. So an example on that population, there was basically zero recruitment in that population prior to this treatment occurring. We euthanized those 11 sheep. Our lamb recruitment was, I think, 22 to 33 in that population. So the sheep that we euthanized were actually um, recruited the next year by the lamb population. So once we saw that success and we could see that the lambs and we were getting our carryover and our populations were doing what they were supposed to be doing, then we became target-specific on different populations and how they're interconnected and if we needed to treat this herd and this herd, if they're going to intermingle, we want to make sure we don't get that crossover. So that's how we kind of progressed up the west side of the Fraser. So, you know, two years ago we did it, did the first one. The second one was done the year before, or last year. <clears throat> and then this this year they did the final piece up to the, to the um, Chilcotin River. So basically the west side of the Fraser has been treated. The mountain herds haven't been treated and we're not 100% what's out there and if there's moby present we know what we're dealing on the west side of the fraser we didn't move into the junction or any of those other populations kind of around there and those are definitely on our radar um, but we use the border of the river as that barrier to stop that um, those sheep intermingling so the west side of the fraser has been treated obviously we monitored our lamb counts and obviously you had greg on on here and you know, he's been managing the lamb counts on the Fraser and, you know, hats off to him and sacrificing his weekends, doing what he's doing. Because we're seeing that information has become really vital to Chris by the time they come to do their fall counts, um, just to make sure that that lamb recruitment is carrying over. So we're seeing that success. We're seeing some numbers. We have, I don't know what the population numbers, if we're seeing that drive up yet, but, you know, I guess if I just backed it up one step, we're original population was 3,500 to 4,000 sheep and we're down to 850 to 950 on the Fraser. So that's a dramatic reduction. We want to see those numbers come back to those historic levels. So that's that was the vision piece from seven years ago um, was to reestablish those populations. So this year, as you were just touching on Kyle, we're going to be starting on the west side around Pavilion. And this is where the really cool thing is, is we, we um, Wild Sheep Society of BC has purchased a drop net. It's actually, Chris has got it in Region 3. And we're going to be using a drop net to capture these sheep, test them, and then hopefully treat the ones that are positive and release the rest and hopefully start to see that lamb recruitment on the rest on that side. The key piece and the cool part for our members is, depending on how many sheep are there, it's a volunteer opportunity where actually our members are going to be able to come out, volunteer, sign up, potentially get their hands on a sheep while we get this testing piece done. Um, and that is one of the more rewarding things um, that you're probably going to have a do. And I've been fortunate enough 
to be involved with a bunch of captures and transplants. Um, I think I've transplanted a hundred sheep within the province. And it's, it's more rewarding probably than harvesting a sheep. Um, maybe not your first one, but definitely, uh, definitely if you've shot more than one or two, but, um, the feeling of giving back of that piece is there. So that's going to be a hands-on experience for members and, um, and people that get out there just to interact with wild sheep and get up close and personal. So that's definitely something to look forward to in February, March of this year for uh, for members to be really involved with. Very cool. So Chris, let's just, if we could just go back and um, for those listening, just explain a little bit about the test and remove. So, um, you know, Movi is present on that Fraser River herd, as we know. He talked about testing and removing them. So there's a couple key pieces. It's only lambs and ewes that we're capturing, right? The rams, we, as a general rule, we don't capture. Is that, that's correct? Yeah, we don't capture the rams because they're usually not around. And we've had discussion around this with Chris, and the rams aren't around the lambs at that time of year. And we're not seeing a lot of sick sheep out on the landscape. So it, from what we're seeing, it hasn't had any effect on, on what we're doing with treatment. So, yeah, you're totally right, Kyle. It's just lambs and ewes. And basically what's involved is the capture piece, nasal swab, like you get tested for COVID. It's just as deep, just tickles your brain. And then that swab gets put in its vial and it goes off to um, Sherry, who has a biomine unit. And she actually takes the swab, dissects it all up, puts it in the solution and then gets it onto the biomine unit. Once it's in that biomine unit, um, it goes through its process and that gives you a reading of a positive or negative, but it doesn't come out and say positive. It's a, it's like a curve chart. And if it shows this curve going up, it's movie positive. And then once that results in, so the way we were doing it last year is, was we were um, putting a VHF collar on. If they tested positive, then Chris and Ben would go out and actually euthanize that shoot sheep from the helicopter um, the next day. So it wasn't immediate. We put the VHF on them. If they were positive, we went back. The VHFs fall off within a year. So I'm not sure if how we're doing this. I'm going to assume that we're going to have, if we're doing a drop net, we're going to test them. Hopefully we get the results while we've got that sheep so we're not having to go out back in the helicopter out in a VHF. But um, that's something that's got to be worked out. I'm not sure about that one yet. About the, heli- about the helicopter, is that government or is that uh, private? That is private, and uh, you know, there's a big shout out right there to Canadian Wildlife Captures and um, and Ben Berikoff. Ben Berikoff, just believing in our mission, and then I know I bugged you about this earlier in the year, but um, I think Ben's over the capture period, he's donated close. What's the figure? I, I can't remember the number. It was like forty grand or something. It was yeah. ridiculous. It was. It wasn't ten. It was in the, the high. Tens of thousands of dollars, yeah. Yeah, like forty to fifty thousand dollars. So, um, you know, he's been a great supporter, and you know, believing in the vision and what Wild Sheep said he's been has been doing, and he's been fantastic with the support. Um, so, yeah, it's not a government helicopter; it's Canadian Wildlife Captures. So it's Ben Barakoff, um, usually Chris Proctor, Net Gunner. It's pretty cool. I was fortunate enough to get out there as well as Peter. Um, to see those guys work and uh, yeah, true professionals and what they do and how they do it um, on the, on the landscape. And, you know, you kind of alluded a bit, Kyle, and I'd be remiss if I missed just some of the funding partners on, on 
and what it's done to take the success on the Fraser. You know, originally it started off with just Wild Sheep Society of BC. Jurassic Classic has been a supporter from day one. Um, and I'm not sure of the figure that Jurassic's invested in the Fraser, but it's been very, you know, it's a considerable amount in mm-hmm. the hundreds of thousands of dollars again, I think. Um, WSF, HCTF. And really they were our forefront, you know, Midwest chapter's been in from day one um, on a three-year sponsorship initially, and then they just rejoined again for another three years. So they've had investments. We kept it kind of a small investment originally, um, just so we could kind of keep it within our control, but also to make sure that we had the money that Chris could do what he needed to do. And like I said, in the first year or two, having that donation from Ben just pushed it over the top and we made sure we were able to afford what we were trying to do out there. So those funding partners have been key and now we've expanded a bit and Kyle's working on some really cool stuff um, to perpetuate that. And like I said, once we get the treatments done, we're going to be moving to habitat work and it's, it'll be more costly than what we're doing on the treatment side of things. So one of the things that I hear often, and I always wondered this myself, Chris, is why aren't we transplanting sheep? Why aren't we moving sheep all over the province? There's all this habitat, you know, um, how come we're not doing that? And I know some people almost are disappointed that we're not doing that. So um, why haven't you done a transplant, Chris? Well, the biggest reason will be disease transmission and knowing whether we're, you know, you're capturing sheep and actually moving Movi to a healthy sheep population. Um, is the biggest reason. And then are we doing more damage by taking sheep from one area and putting them in another area? No, there's not much science on it, but kind of my own theory is usually when we do a capture, you're capturing those those lead sheep, those lead ewes that are know that where, where to go at springtime, where to go in the summer, where to go in fall. And then they... Um, you capture those sheep, you take them away, they usually do okay, but it's that remaining population, they seem to lose that knowledge gap when we do it when we do a transplant. And again, I don't think there's much science out, and it's just my observation from Spencer's Bridge. But um, and you know, there's other disease things that we gotta be concerned about, but I think disease is the number one reason why we don't do it, that we don't want to spread it. And then, you know, where are, what's our healthy you know, what's our source population? Is it going to be 100% healthy? And do we have the numbers to take sheep from a population? And right now we don't even have the numbers to take sheep from any population within the province and put them anywhere else. So there's the, there's the two pieces where we're down in numbers. You know, Granby was potentially a source population, but then with the uh, blue tongue last year, that kind of, that removed any, chance of that happening and we we figured those are they were they're movie free sheep um probably the healthiest sheep population right now in the province apart from our stone sheep are going to be is that um california herd on uh on bear creek on the west side of okanagan lake mm-hmm. and uh, that's one area we need to make sure there's no domestics on that side of that lake because those sheep are doing really well okay um yeah, it was interesting uh, on one of our calls recently on the Fraser River Working Group. Uh, that's what Chris said. One of the Fraser River uh, populations was a, a critically low number, and they're like, "We need more. We need more sheep. Like, where can we find some?" And uh, you were on that call, and Chris like, uh, "There, there's nowhere we can take from. We, we we're, we're just going to be robbing Peter to pay Paul or whatever, right?" So, 
um, yeah, it's uh, it, it and, and then yeah. So like you said, the key takeaway there is we can't move sheep around due to disease. But once we get the disease thing solved, hopefully we do, then then we're good to go. So we start growing them again. Okay, cool. So okay, we we touched on the Fraser. Um, that's probably our biggest funding source as of late. But we've got some pretty lofty goals here. Do you want to talk about Region Seven and Burns, or what do you what do you want to jump into next, Chris? Well, still, I think if Region Three, I mean, we we've got a, still a pretty good heavy investment in Region Three this year. We're doing, um, you know, we collared sheep on Kamloops Lakes last year. Um, again, WSSBC mostly funded that, so our member funds um, on that, along with that um, purchase on Kamloops Lake. But we're also doing the South Thompson this year. We're looking at sheep collaring there and. Um, we purchased 40 collars to get some collars on the South Thompson. So that's basically south of um, the highway heading towards Blue River. And then there's going to be a control herd that actually is doing well. We're seeing good land recruitment. And we want to use that control herd to compare what's going on in the South Thompson and Kamloops Lake um, and see if it's habitat. And um, we've ruled it. So and that's the other piece. We've ruled out disease. Um, when we test these sheep so once we know we're movie free then we can start looking to see if there's what's limiting these populations if it's not movie so um you know we big investment in south thompson this year without collaring i think uh where's that figure kyle i think it's 40k or so for collars it was uh, north of 50 for the collars yeah yeah um that was yeah we made that purchase early in the year um, yeah and then helicopter time yeah. So. so there's helicopter time. And again, we got great funding support again, you know, with partners, WSF um, and other groups joining in with us um, to make that success. So, yeah, I think Wild Sheep Foundation approved 40,000 US for that South Thompson project. So, yeah, great collaboration and support there for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, so we're doing so, you know, Region 3 is just as strong and like you, you kind of alluded to the burns where our next big investment is in, uh, in region seven and uh, Josh's vision for the burns up north is, uh, is staggering. He's I, my hat goes off to him cause he's worked his ass off to, uh, to make that burn happen. I kind of, I've been on a few of the calls with those guys and, and what they've been dealing with and the frustration level. I think I would have lost my shit a long time ago. <laughs> um, and so my hat's off to Josh for being persistent to get that done and get that first burn off is, uh, you know, that we got off this year is, is huge. And uh, Josh's vision for $700,000 worth of burns up north is uh, is a lofty goal. So he's uh, he set a challenge for us to, to raise some funds. We're well on our way. And um, that figure, of, you know, WSF, again, a big believer in supporting Thinhorn thinhorn sheep populations in bc and i guess if i kind of go off topic just a bit there you know people often wonder where that money is coming from that's coming from non-resident hunters you know that money's raised at wsf and coming back into bc so when non-resident hunters are here hunting and what wsf does and raises funds in the U.S. and then brings and invests that into our stone sheep populations is huge. And so their investment, I mean, what did they approve of the burns? 256,000, Kyle, is that the right figure? I think it was just, yeah, it was just over two, 250, um, yeah, so 250 U.S. 250,000 U.S. for the burns in Region 7 for stone sheep. Um, 
you know, outstanding. And then we haven't even, you know, is what, you know, HCTF, WSS, BC contributions um, and whatever the partners we can kind of dig up now. But um, like I say, Josh's task is pretty good to, uh, to move forward. But, um, you know, hopefully that's going to reestablish what's going on in the mountains and, and start doing that. You know, obviously there's other things with stone sheep, you know, inventories get really good information on what we're doing. Um, we do have a bit of baseline health stuff on our southern, most southern populations of stone sheep, which is going to be key um, to help drive whether they've had movie in the past and they survived it. Um, that serology tells us that. Um, but again, we're looking at habitat. How do we how do we keep these populations? What's our number one priority to maintain or increase stone sheep population? So other than you know, obviously predator management, but habitat is the key key piece there. Well, so talking to Josh, and you'll have to help me with these numbers, Chris, but we did four burn polygons this year, So, and I think we have another seven approved. So um, we know that we can do seven in this spring for sure, but there, Josh is working hard on getting a whole bunch of others approved. I think his vision, well, I, I heard a number, you said 750, I heard 800,000 was the budget that he'd hoped to get on the ground this year. And you're like, well, that's pretty ambitious, Josh. But, uh, and we're obviously we hope we can do that, but it, you know, very ambitious. Um, but then, you know, Josh said he figured that he had 95 or 90 polygons that identified that over the next 10 years we'd like to do. Um, and, you know, you talk to the outfitting community, um, it's interesting. Wayne Henderson, a good friend of ours, who's on the Wild Sheep Foundation board, he just came back from Northern BC and harvested a stone ram. And he said, you talk to any outfitter, they're all saying, you know, if we had millions of dollars, we could spend it all on burns. Like this stuff is overgrown. Sight lines are, are uh, compromised. You know, predators have an easier time. Um, what should be grassy slopes is overgrown with woody stuff that sheep can't graze. And um, and I guess this is all comes back to controlling fire, right? On the landscape, it's, uh, you know, we want to squash fire out there because people seem to think it's bad and we all know it's good for wildlife. Yeah, that's the best thing for wildlife. And, you know, it comes back to, uh, you know, Josh's vision and he had this vision, like you said, Kyle, 10 years and those lofty goals. Um, you know, if my, I remember one of my old bosses saying me, a plan without a date is just a dream and, uh, that's so true. If you don't put it into effect, you're never going to achieve your goal. So, you know, again, hats off to Josh for getting this done and having that vision um, to get these burns. And now we've just got to create the buy-in from everybody and eliminate these roadblocks and get industry on board and say, you know, how do we all work together to achieve what we're doing? Um, you know, Josh is doing a huge job working with First Nations and that collaboration piece is key to being successful for these burns. And Josh has done a great job again, making sure First Nations are out there and they're actually flying around in the choppers with her. They're doing the counts, they're helping out with the burns. Um, it's it's that whole collaborative piece that's key in being successful to make sure that this is gonna move forward and continue to move forward. And hopefully we're laying the groundwork, you know, when we are gone, that somebody's gonna continue doing this vision piece because like I said, if we get disease sorted out, it's going to come back to habitat work and making sure that not just sheep, but all wildlife's got a place on the landscape, that they've got a place to live. Um, and down south, we see where we're losing it is the key piece, right? How do we how do we 
we can't create new wintering places. So the habitat's got to be in top-notch condition and those population objectives need to be met and make sure we're maintaining those population objectives for our species. Oh yeah. I was in a, uh, a place west of town here that had a burn three years ago, two years ago, a really big hot burn. And uh, I was just scouting it for a hunt that I'm doing next week. And the, the amount of sight lines that have opened up, it used to be full of nothing but beetle kill and gnarly blow down. It, it's gone. We were able to ride ATV through there and we, we had to cut down some deadfall that had fallen from the burn, but that the new growth was everywhere, ungulate tracks. It was just, it was like Narnia type thing, just bright greens that you wouldn't expect. So yeah, burns do have a place, right? Nobody wants to to lose infrastructure. So when, when a burn's in a spot that can handle it and needs it, and nothing's at risk, let it go. Monitor it, of course, but uh, we, we need to put more fire back on the landscape. It just, it's better for everything. Yeah, I couldn't agree 100% more with that, with that comment, Stephen. You know, often we talk about it in the Okanagan, and that's, you know, when I kind of alluded a little bit to the Okanagan about when we did those burn plans and those recce assessments. Um, I think we had 12 polygons down there, and they were big. They weren't like the ones that Josh had. They were, I took the whole piece for sheep and said that's what we need to burn and then I let John do his work and um, Mother Nature's burned all of those those 12 polygons there's one left now I'm at a bench right so and I've been bugging them to do put a wildfire break in there make that corridor for the sheep for the wildlife to get above the vineyards so you don't have that hot fire and here we are we're still talking about it there's nothing in the books for the Naramata bench and every other piece the last one that burned was last year was uh, McLean Creek, right? Perfect fire for sheep. So with regards to, to fire, you know, that we've had some members reach out uh, on social when we post our burns and stuff like that, asking about, oh, you know, well, what are they going to eat in term or, you know, does this affect them or is it, you know, um, Josh has said that on some of these fires, they've flown it. And I'm not sure if it was weeks or months after the, of course, these are spring burns. Um, but literally within weeks or months, um, they see sheep back on these pieces of property, on, on these burns, and there's little shoots of green already up. It, it's just, it's that quick, and they're already feeding on it, right? So um, really, really fast rejuvenating and, and um, you know, no real adverse effect to, to sheep from what we've heard for the most part. So, um, yeah, pretty, mm -hmm. pretty positive all around. Well, just coming back to that, Kyle, like McKay Creek Fire, we actually had some callers before that fire occurred and we actually had GPS points on those sheep and that fire was going on. Mm. And you're correct. They were back in there two weeks after that fire had gone through, they were back in the burn. But from what we gathered, we didn't lose any sheep in that fire. They just kind of ducked out of the way of where the fire was burning. And then um, they were back on that habitat. And like you say, it's back within two weeks. And if you get a rain shower after that, it's like, boom. Biggest issue though is just making sure that we're monitoring for invasives after these big fires because we can see a real influx of invasives coming after. And that's that's another thing that's on our radar. Again, projects in region four. Um, our biggest thing in region four seems to be invasives right now and managing invasives on high elevation grasslands, which normally you wouldn't think you'd see invasives up there, but you know, that bull mountain burn, we couldn't do that burn until we got rid of the invasives. So we sprayed the invasives, that bull mountain burn took place this year. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, again, there's these nuances underneath it. Can we get a burn done? And, you know, to members that are concerned about a burn impact in well, if we, we don't see it, obviously, you know, if you have a real fast moving fire, it can actually, you know, some wildlife gets caught, but um, from our call data and stuff, it's been uh, nothing but positive things. Oh yeah. Very rarely does wildlife get caught from what we've seen, right? Uh, they, they're, they, they know what's coming. They get the hell out of the way and then they, they come back, as you said, within sometimes hours, sometimes days, sometimes weeks. That's, uh, yeah, a lot of them, the, the, the ones that get caught are the ones that are the terrestrial ones, the ones that are burrowing down and you get a really hot fire that gets a couple of feet down. Then, yeah, there's, there's a little bit of collateral loss, but overall, 99% of the stuff gets out of the way. And when you speak about invasives, Chris, what are you referring to? Like any, give us any sort of example. Um, Natweed's probably the biggest one. Um, we're seeing a lot of cheatgrass invasion in Region 3. Um, and that's kind of one of those pilot projects we're just starting to work on um, with Bill Jacks, um, our sheep and goat biologist specialist for the province. Um, talked to Bill quite a bit about how we can get this pilot project. Um, and again, interestingly enough, we start talking about it and um, KIB's already been working on different things to try and manage cheatgrass on the Harper Ranch and, uh, and their territory there. So again, positive steps forward and again, collaboration moving forward. Hopefully we can do that. But in the Kootenays, it's, it's nap meat, nap weed. There's, I think there's two or three other species and I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, I know I should. Um, I think there's, um, there's cheatgrass. Yeah. Uh, is one of them. Did you say that? And then yeah. there's uh, African wiregrass, I think yeah. was the other one that Bill had mentioned. And then there's one more, I think, and I can't remember what it is, Kyle. And okay. I think they were, I know they were spraying for it. So basically, you know, it's pretty intensive to treat invasives. It requires the spraying. And obviously it's, um, you know, what kind of a pesticide are we using to do that? And all the processes to go through that. But um, that's been a big thing. And, you know, working with the Elk Valley Invasive Species Council has been a really good, um, rewarding process moving forward and Kyle's actually jumped into that one and um has kind of been helping lead that that area with Gabriella down there yeah uh ECAS does a great job on on uh, invasive weeds and um yeah been partnering with them um but they you know they've they've done really well this year actually they got a ton of HETF funding and stuff so it's been it's been really good 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 work so let's let's jump into some stuff in region four Chris so you know region four um you know, was as a bit of a bit of a tinderbox for us. You know, there was a lot of dialogue around LEH, and um, you know, we we're obviously advocating for uh, you know more government money on the ground for conservation, and instead of pulling the hunting lever again, right? So, you know, some of that was misconstrued somehow that we we didn't care about the sheep; we just wanted to go and kill them, which absolutely wasn't true. What we we're trying to do is leverage the government to to make sure they were spending the funds to ensure you know the sheep were being rehabilitated instead of worrying about harvest procedures, let's focus on the true cause of, you know, all these things, highway mortality, cheatgrass, hundred other things. So, um, you know, you, right from the start, this has been a vision of yours is to support those sheep in, in the Kootenays, right? Talk, maybe start off by talking about the number of sheep harvested in the sixties. Cause you have some stats there that are pretty alarming actually. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Actually, Steven Lindenberger, um, guide outfitter in the Kootenays sent me a newspaper clipping from 1963, um, about the whole harvest. So it used to be the harvest was actually published in the newspaper 
um, throughout the province. So, you know, the elk numbers, the sheep numbers is like, this is absolutely amazing. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff. Industries had a lot of impact. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's impacted those numbers. But I think the harvest in 63 was 262 sheep or something. Um, in Region 4 alone. In Region 4. And I think, what are we down to, like 20... I don't know if it's 25, I think on the last GOS, I'm not counting LEH, but um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure where the numbers are right now. But um, So 263 and 265 sheep and... Yeah, in 63. Okay. Yeah, 1963, when I was born. <laughs> Just to date myself. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so what are some of the major projects then that we're, we're diving into in, in four then? So right now in four, I think the biggest thing is just making sure that the, whatever we've got for habitat is left that can support these populations. And then we can start to see those numbers. Obviously, you know, working a lot with Irene, the regional bio, she's fantastic to work with. But trying to get, you know, there's no population objectives there. So what number are we trying to manage to? Is it 20? Is it 50? Is it 100? You know, to have a, a hunting season, and again, it's not about the hunting piece, but we're looking at 75 animals for a hunting season so to me i i just translate that that's a viable population number if we're looking at 75 that keeps the population you know robust genetics all that stuff um if that's a number so how do you know what do we need to do in region four obviously we're not going to get back to those historic numbers just because the way the habitat's fragmented and that connectivity has been lost but what can we do so whatever what is a population objective for bull mountain is it 60 animals 70 animals let's have that out front and center so we that's a gives us our measurable to say yeah what we're doing is being successful and we're meeting our objectives if the numbers are increasing and we see them increasing yeah what we're doing is starting to work so i think there's some tools there that we need to have in place to manage what we're doing. And like I said, Irene's been good. You know, they've done a bunch of stuff over there. Um, you know, Irene was doing invasive management on Wigwam before anybody else. She was doing it herself. She applied to HCTF. I remember seeing her applications coming in and she was doing it way back, way back when, like 10, 12 years ago. Um, so I think how we find, how are we, how are we going to interconnect? How are we going to manage that mind piece where we don't really have control of those population numbers. So how do we guarantee that those numbers are going to be there, that we don't lose that habitat? Obviously they're trying to mine the last piece of high elevation grassland in, in the Elk Valley, which is going to impact those sheep. So how do we, how do we work with industry to get that happen? You know, that to me is a no go zone. You can't take the last piece of high elevation grasslands out of there. So does it come back to, lobbying and habitat protection making sure our habitat's in good condition make sure we don't have those invasives so those sheep have got enough nutrition to get them through the winter you know you touched on mortality how do we limit that highway mortality i mean obviously we raised a big stink about it early this year when it was going on and now we reached out to that golf course owner to help make sure we had some some place to look after those sheep but how do we stop losing what was it 25 percent of our sheep population on a yearly basis due to road mortality um you know the same thing in golden 
um, with the highway going in there, we, you know, we helped Golden Rod and Gun Club get their project off the ground with the coloring process. And, you know, that's a population that we're never going to hunt. But it wasn't about the hunting piece. It was about the conservation piece. Those sheep showed up there on themselves. So they came from somewhere else, decided they were going to live there just because we've got the number one running through there. Now we're expanding it. Those sheep took a sacrifice because they did an original transplant out of there. They transplanted them and they just became bait for, for predators where they got transplanted too. So um, I think we really need to look at hard and fast how we can keep our populations where they need to be in the Kootenays. And I think Habitat's going to be our number one success there. They're doing some predator stuff. Um, you know, how do we make sure we can kind of control all of that stuff in, in the Kootenays? And I think it just needs to be on our radar front and center 24-7. Good stuff. Okay, so um, let's kind of wrap up projects. Is there any other projects you want to talk about? Any other regions? Um, I know we, we've touched on a few of them, but uh, there's a few we haven't. Is there anything you want to talk about? That yeah, I think just for, for, for members, you know, Region 5 is kind of rolled into Region 3. Um so whatever we're doing in Region 3 with the treatments, we'll roll into Region 5. Um, great post we had out about a member reporting a, a dead sheep um, that we didn't have any info on, and and, the, and Region 5 got out there and actually did a necropsy on the mountain and got those samples back in to give us that baseline health on on some sheep that we didn't have. Again, our member money, like we were able to react to that as soon as we found out about it. WSSBC funded that helicopter flight to get that out and get that back in. So pretty cool stuff. You're going to see a lot of stuff coming up for Region 8 pretty soon. Um, just around the Movi side of things. Like we, we know we've got Movi in the Okanagan. Um, we haven't done any treatments. We're, because the, those sheep are interconnected, we're worried about them crossing the border. And until Washington State and we get on board with one another, and again, Huge collaboration between Colville, Confederated Tribes, ONA, our regional bios, Wild Sheep Society, BC, trying to figure out how we can deal with that cross-border and do those treatments. Um, Washington needs to be on side with treating their sheep as well as we do because those rams are crossing back and forth on the border. So our members are going to see a lot of stuff coming up in Region 8, um, probably hopefully next year as that falls out. And then how do we deal with the Seropti stuff in Region 8? So that's probably like a three or four year project down the road. Like I say, Habitat in Region 8 is in good shape. We just got to get Movi off the landscape there and then have that piece of policy legislation to make sure that domestics aren't bringing it back into our sheep populations in 8. Um, region 6, I know we've, we've heard a bit of criticism. We're not doing much in Region 6 and why aren't we doing anything in 6 and um, obviously we talk to Bill all the time and Bill just didn't have anything on his radar. I mean, it's coming, um, you know, I've been working with Bill a few years and that's how we jumped to him with, you know, with Dustin Rowe. Um, Dustin donated a moose hunt to Iowa and I was donating that money back to us to try and get a fertilizer project off instead of burning in six, trying to fertilizer to, you know, keep that, um, sheep habitat invigorated. So, that one we still haven't quite got off the round. We've got our soil samples. We just got to come up with that other piece. So Tottigan burn, I think that got delayed. Um, so there's, there's no, there wasn't much going on in six that we could actually 
do anything. Again, every we want to be doing a project wherever we've got sheep within the province, and I want to have one sheep project in every region every year. So we're not picking and choosing where we're going. We're we're doing as much as we can for every population within the province. And I think the only pro- populations we kind of leave out of it is the dolls in that northwest corner. We haven't, they know it's not on our radar. Um, I talked to Bill a bit. He's looking at doing some inventory work in there, but um, you know we don't know what else we can do for our doll sheep. But um, that kind of sums it up, I guess, of a quick wrap up around the province, anyway. So, how much money do you need? <laughs> Jimmy's listening. <laughs> what, what would solve all your problems for wild sheep in the province? I, I, you know, lots of times it's not even the money, right? Like, there's, you know, we've been trying. We, we've had some regulatory constraints on burns. Um, you know, we could have had $10 million. It wouldn't have helped us for the, the burns, right? So we're getting through that. We're working through that stuff on the regulatory side of things. But it's not always just about the money either, isn't it? No, it's not. And you know what? If if I had the money and I had $10 million in the bank account and we could just spend the spinoff, I could probably, probably be really successful with what we're doing. Um, I think you alluded to a great point, Kyle, about what we have to do within government. And how do we get... I guess it's the bureaucrats. How do we get there? We've got to share our vision with those bureaucrats to get this stuff happening. And instead of putting these roadblocks up all the time is is the key piece. But I think the piece, we kind of touched on it just a hair, but First Nations collaboration is huge. Um, WSSBC has done a great job with that outreach. We've got great relations with quite a few, you know, bands and, and nations, ONA and um, and Kalen Glasser and Addison. And I just saw a text that Addison's moving on. I'm not sure where he's going, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that too. Um, you know, and Hunter, um, the together for wildlife stuff. You know, again, collaboration, interwining all that piece. You know, if if guide outfitters, Wild Sheep Society, BC, um, BC resident hunting organizations. And First Nations, we're all saying the same thing. Government needs to step up and listen to what we're doing on the landscape. Um, we need to remove those load roadblocks for wildlife, and that's that's the ultimate thing. Is we want that wildlife there, and if the non-hunting public wants that wildlife there, then it's up to us to make sure that we get government to do that. And we need to remove those roadblocks and um, and get that engagement. It's frustrating we can't even get a meeting with the minister from Flinro. Um, and obviously now they split the ministries and how's that, you know, if we can't get a meeting with one minister, how are we going to get a meeting with two ministers at the same time? So these nuances in my mind aren't helping. I don't, my opinion, whenever you try and do that, that's just too much. You're dealing with the double bureaucracy below the minister level. And if we can't even get it at the one level, then how are we going to move forward? So that's, that's a real grave concern for me how we can bring that together. So again, you know, Greg and our governor engagement committee, I think they're going to be busy coming up pretty quick um, on how we can influence that and how we can provide members an opportunity to make their voices heard. I think that's ultimately what about is we being able to take our members voices and amplifying those voices is going to be huge. Hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, we could talk projects all day and I, I know you're, you've taken time out of your day to do this, but uh, how about hunting? You going hunting this year or what? What's are you going to go? You, you're putting them on the mountain. Are you taking one off or what? <laughs> well, everybody, I did do a sheep hunt in August and everybody asked me how I did. And I said, I got a lot of exercise. Um, 
you know, coming back to that, we didn't touch on the Gataga project up in Region 7, and uh, you guys touched on a little bit at the beginning, but, you know, 170K on the ground, and uh, it was pretty cool we got it off, but um, they decided to pull those barrels out because of the weather. It was, uh, they were supposed to do it in July, and there was still snow on the ground, so they ended up doing it um, in August, and uh, they happened to be flying over where I was sheep hunting with the helicopter, so I don't think it did us any good for finding sheep where we were, so kind of ironic that... Um, the project's chair gets helicopter flights over with him with barrels from one of our projects that impacts <laughs> where those sheep may be. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> That's true irony right there. Yeah, that is irony. Yeah, for so, sure. But uh, I think, well, we got a goat draw together, so looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, me too, for sure. So, And uh, uh, hopefully your insurance policy is up to date because goats seem to be my nemesis and I'm not very smart when it comes to goat hunting. <laughs> <laughs> Don't scare me. <laughs> oh, man. Awesome. Well, hey, uh, appreciate uh, you taking the time to, to meet with us, Chris. And just, uh, I, I guess, uh, in closing, is there anything you want to just say to our membership in terms of, you know, the support they've given and how, how important that is for the projects? You've kind of touched on that anyway, but uh, any last thoughts on that or? And no, I think, you know, I'm going to steal, you know, you touched on Wayne earlier, but um, Wayne from WSF, his mantra was always about our members and I kind of, I've adopted that a little bit <clears throat> and it, it is about our members and um, I think our members need to know what we're doing, where we're going, how we're doing it and I just can't thank them enough for the support, you know, our raffles, um, I mean, you guys do a great job putting the raffles together. You don't have a great raffle if they don't sell. Mm -hmm. And all our raffles sell out, and that's due to our members' support. And um, that's the money we put on the ground. You know, I'll go back a few years. Mike Schroeder had the vision to kind of put that WSR raffle together. And that was a game changer for how much money the Wild Sheep Society BC put on the ground because it freed up. All that WSR money went on the ground, and then our convention money just added that bonus piece into it. And um, because you, know, you have a convention, you, there's a lot of expenses associated with that convention. We've been able to actually balance that now. And then our convention covers our yearly expenses. And then our member support on raffles and stuff really goes back on the ground. So if, if a member ever thinks what can they do and how they can do and how they're doing it, keep supporting our raffles. That's our money that's helping sheep. And it, and it goes right on the ground. There's, I don't know what our ratio is, but it's uh, it's pretty good with the dollar to ratio we get on the ground from every dollar that comes in, how much we get on the ground. I don't know what that is, but yeah, it's got to be up there. Yeah. Um, so, But, yeah, just thanks to our members. Um, once I'm gone, keep supporting Wild Sheep at EBC. If you know somebody that's passionate about wildlife but not into sheep hunting, still get them a membership. Everything we do on the ground helps every other species, so. You're not going anywhere, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Only in the dirt. <laughs> awesome. Well, I appreciate all you do, Chris, and uh, just just your leadership and and uh, vision and and just your enthusiasm for wild sheep is, you know, sometimes you you know in in the racket you kind of get beat up a little bit and you're like dragging, but I always call you and you you, you get me back on my feet and and uh, getting after it. So no, we're we're so grateful for your leadership on this and. Uh, 
And I have to say, like, um, of the all the things we do as a society, I think the one thing we do the best is um, look after wild sheep in BC. And you're at the very heart of that. You're the guy that's making it happen. So pretty cool. No, thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Steve. I think, you know, in closing, uh, a bit of a joke kind of there, Kyle, Jeremy, Serbs, you guys always dread when I phone him because it usually means work for him. So always means even work. Mm -hmm. too. Always. Absolutely. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> it's like, uh oh, okay. Parker's phoning. Yeah. What's he got? He's got something for me to do. Well, like a true projects chair, it's uh, you're good at delegating, right? So and I do that for real life too. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. And uh, good to have you on. Let's do it more often. Yeah. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you.